Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 77 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, June 5th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and Bobby, I went to a concert last night. Rock out, Steve. What'd you, who'd you go see? I went to see Paul Simon. Karen and I, Karen for his belated birthday present, Paul Simon was playing here as part of his Homeward Bound farewell tour. Um, and I, I think we were among the younger people <laughs> were in, you? in the audience. But that's a that's a great show to go see. So um, do you want to give a quick rundown now or do you no, want to well, save well, that? Well, to, you know, that well, sounds like some frivolity. That does sound like some frivolity. And, and, you know, if only we could go right to frivolity. But I feel like there's been some stuff. You know, the other day, our last episode, we had kind of a slow week, and I think the show <laughs> reflected the that. We were we were trying hard to fill the time, um, and, and then and then President Trump called his legal scholars. He got he's got all of them. All right, so what all, have we got all of, today? All, all of them. I mean, so so all of them, all of the legal scholars who think the president can pardon himself, who think that Mueller's investigation is unconstitutional, and who think that the D.C. Circuit's 1997 decision in In Ray Sealed case proves that Trump can resist a grand jury subpoena. Those legal scholars? Those legal scholars. Ah, okay. Well, p- well, pardon me, Steve. Pardon me? Uh-oh. Episode I like, title. I like Episode title. You just, I mean, it's supposed to sound like we didn't plan it, but we actually planned it this week. That's perfect. Okay. Let's use it. Okay, what else do we have to talk about besides the usual Trumplandia development? We actually had, had a, a real development in national security law land, which was the release of this 20-page or 22-page, 20-some-odd page OLC opinion defending the legality of the April 13th airstrikes against Syria. A classic topic for us to explore this separation, separation of powers and the constitutional distribution of authority over committing the U.S. military to force. So Indeed. that'll be a good uh, old chestnut to old dig chestnut. into. Old um, chestnut. Yeah. We have some some contributions from our sustaining members. So uh, there was a, a, a strange development in Doe versus Mattis, the U.S. citizen habeas case, where the government apparently came clean that it had accidentally discovered it was surveilling um, phone calls between Doe and his ACLU lawyers for yeah. some period of time. That'll be fun to talk about. Oh, yeah. That's that, lots of fun. Um, I'll, I'll, just to preview it, like, I think you and I both think it's actually not that big a deal, except that what it's, except insofar as what it shows us about what's going on at Guantanamo. It was hilarious to see right-wing Twitter freak out. Look! Spying! See? Spygate! Is Spygate. That what, wait, is that what Giuliani's talking about? Yeah, they're spying on this U.S. citizen enemy combatant. That oh, okay. I did not know that. Um, we also, to follow up on two things we talked about last week, so so Amar al-Baluchi, one of the 9-11 defendants, has now brought an appeal to the D.C. Circuit, um, seeking basically a preservation order for material obtained from a black site. And I'm sorry, listeners, I have to say a bit more about Dalmazi because just when you thought it was over... Wait a minute, which one's Dalmazi? Just yeah, kidding, just I kidding. know. But the government filed this, I think, um, remarkably... How shall I say? Remarkable letter yesterday uh, that I think ought not to go un- unmentioned. Well, we'll have your sir reply on the program in just a little while. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so um, after that little tour through uh, military court land, what else have we got? We've got other courts. We've got the European Court of Human Rights um, with a couple of interesting decisions that are indirectly related to Guantanamo and U.S. torture after 9-11. We've got the Justice Department doing some more criminal investigations. We've got uh, the, U- the U.S. Army Court of Criminal Appeals ACA. and uh, a case involving Bradley slash Chelsea Manning uh, rejecting an attempt to get some conviction, get her convictions overturned. We have the D.C. District Court throwing out both of the Kaspersky suits that we've talked about before. Uh, and then we'd be remiss 
and not spending at least a few minutes, Bobby, talking about the latest developments in Trumplandia. And in addition to the ones we already mentioned, we've got uh, the disclosure of letters from Team Trump to Team Mueller. And there's the, some interesting the, the leaking of letters from the, Team Trump. I wonder who leaked them, Bobby. Don't yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it, was the, sure it was the prosecutors. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it wasn't the people who actually wrote the letters for public consumption. And then I think we just can't resist uh, playing some uh, Fortnite, Mana Fortnite, if Mana you will. Fortnite. I, I like that. that. Yeah, that's a bit of a stretch, but you got to try to work Fortnite into everything. If, now. If, we, if we didn't have Pardon Me, I would say Fortnite, Mana Fortnite would actually not be. <laughs> Somebody bad. please use. I'm sure it's been done. And then uh, in our in our frivolity time, you know, I said last week we would do our our our, our favorite Weird Al Yankovic songs. Bobby fell down on the job so instead maybe we'll just talk about paul simon yeah fair enough i'll own that okay so let's talk with the office of legal counsel's opinion uh titled april 2018 airstrikes against syrian chemical weapons facilities whoa so now we've we've known for some time that of course there there was or probably was uh, an office of legal counsel opinion um steve why don't you first prep listeners on the role of olc opinions in general sort of w- what is this uh, authority yeah who are these people and why does president trump sometimes claim that everything they say is word and then sometimes he ignores everything they say well let's not make it too much about trump we'll have a whole session on that later okay. all right we'll get back to trump so the office of legal counsel is the um subdivision within the department of justice that is responsible for basically providing legal advice to the attorney general and through the attorney general to the president and the rest of the executive branch. Um, OLC opinions are not formally binding on anybody outside the Justice Department. But Bobby, I do think it's safe to say they tend to be relatively authoritative insofar as summarizing executive branch practice. Yeah, and I I would describe it as a situation in which unless the uh, attorney general or the president himself in some way acts to, to uh, break with an OLC right. opinion, or unless a court says the opinion's incorrect. Well, but but just staying within the executive yeah. branch, unless the attorney general or the president gets involved and says, "Well, we're not going with that interpretation," which actually can't think of a specific example of that actually happening. Um, the presumption or the the practice is that for the executive branch, that is now the settled legal position. Right. Um, so of course, OLC opinions are therefore given a whole lot of weight, um, certainly by scholars, when it comes to trying to understand legal opinions, legal positions, legal rationales, especially in contexts, Bobby, that tend not to produce litigation, because then you don't have necessarily the kind of briefing and adversarial presentation in judicial decisions that often more sharply crystallize the relevant legal questions. So at a minimum, they are, if not the best, one of the best ways to understand any given administration's uh, current legal position. And... uh, perhaps a bit stronger than that because over time, OLC refers back to its own prior opinions in precedent-like fashion. Like this one. And they're written in a way that it's written in the style of a judicial opinion, and it has a lot of the trappings of an intra-executive internal advisory opinion. And there is, I mean, just like judicial opinions, I mean, I think this is where we might start getting into the this opinion in particular. There is a bit of stare decisis to OLC opinions, where once OLC concludes a, reaches a particular conclusion on a question, you know, they, they, they would need relatively decent reasons to come to a different conclusion, even in a different administration with a different president. Yeah, it's always, it's always it does happen. They will, just like sure. the courts itself. Sure. Um, but it's a striking thing when it happens. So now in this case, of course, the question was not uh, one about the use of force against the Islamic State. This is specific to the Trump administration's use of uh, air power to strike the Assad regime in a particular way because of the Assad regime's use of chemical weapons. And yep. this is primarily about the the uh, set of attacks that occurred in April 2018. Yep. On April 13th. It references back to the prior smaller strike, uh, the Sherat Airfield strike. 
Um, now, and, now we had we had a whole episode back in April that was about our sort of preliminary assessment of yeah. the relevant legal questions and why I think we were both fairly convinced that these strikes were not lawful as a matter of international law and why we thought it was at least a stretch under domestic law. Is that a fair summary of where we were in April? You know, I, I'm not sure I would, frankly, I don't, I'm not sure what I said back in <laughs> April, so I got to be careful here. Um, certainly, it's it's really hard to come up with any kind of UN charter compliant justification. And, and conspicuously, the administration is not remotely suggested otherwise. <laughs> Nor, including in the OLC memo. Right. And, and it's not even a topic. And this memo is going to be purely about domestic U.S. constitutional law. It's not about international law in any way, which we'll talk about what, if anything, that signifies. Yeah. Um, Although, just just to, yeah. to, to one quibble, just because I don't want to lose this framing to begin with, the U.N. Charter is not just international law. The U.N. Charter is a treaty to which we're a party. It is, therefore, the supreme law of the land. Right. Treaties are part of the law of the land. That's the supremacy clause. So, um, Sorry, I don't mean to cause trouble. No, not causing trouble, but it's, it'll be relevant for our analysis. All right, so should we dive into the so, – so the OLC memo. I mean, so Steve Engel is the uh, Senate-confirmed head, the assistant attorney general in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel, and it's his opinion. I mean, right, he, he takes the reins. It's dated May 31st, although what's clear from the opinion is this is basically the formal memorialization yeah. – of informal oral advice. Right. Which is, I think, a very common practice for LC. Yep. It is it is completely ordinary for there to be um, an oral rendering of opinion f- to be followed by the, the fleshed out. Uh, Especially in a context like this, where the president is, is considering, you know, some kind of immediate military action. Right. And wants to get some kind of legal advice, but doesn't want to have to wait for the formalization of the opinion. So here's why there was a question for OLC to weigh in on. Uh, There is no AUMF or declaration of war targeting the government of Syria, targeting the Assad regime. Uh, We have talked endlessly on this program about the claims that the 2001 AUMF authorizes the use of force, and maybe the 2002 AUMF as well, authorizing the use of force in Syria vis-a-vis the Islamic State, but no one has claimed and no one is claiming that in any existing statute authorizes force against Assad. So when force was used against the Assad regime, it did raise a question, is that within the inherent, uh, you know, the Article Two authorities of the executive branch, uh, or was it in fact a usurpation of something that was Congress's prerogative to authorize? Now, to be clear, there were folks on the internet, because you can find any theory on the internet, saying that the use of force was, was perfectly authorized by the War Powers Resolution, as we explained. No. No, that's not how it works. Right. This all so so the domestic argument here rises and falls on how we interpret Article Two, right? Right. And, and informed people aren't. So let's talk about just what's the, <laughs> what, what are the parameters of the informed debate? The informed debate. No one is claiming there's a statutory authorization. Right. The, the question is debate, whether the president had the power to act without. Uh, yeah, without it's, it's just a classic separation of powers right. issue involving the war powers. All right. So the OLC opinion sets up the sets up the framework in this way. It basically says there are two questions we really have to answer. Right. The first question is, does the use of force the president is contemplating rise to the level of, quote, war, unquote, for constitutional purposes, such that there is actually a constitutional requirement that Congress be invested, involved, and and on board? And if not, then the second question is, is the use of force within, quote, the national interest, unquote? Um, Now, as Jack Goldsmith has pointed out on Lawfare, you know, we already suspected that the, the national interest forming framing is not brand new. The Trump administration, we had seen similar arguments made by the Obama administration. But it is, Bobby, a pretty important departure from prior conceptions of Article 2, which had always framed the conversation in terms of self-defense. 
Let's maybe back up to that prior understanding. And I think we did do this in our April episode that I think you and I would agree that a, a useful way to introduce sort of a standard way of teaching this area is to refer to the prize cases, the 19th century Civil War era Supreme Court case that is remains the clearest thing on record explaining where the constitutional separation of powers line lies doctrinally between uh, Congress and the president. At least once you've got a use of force, it's risen to the level that implicates that discussion at all. And in that case, the Supreme Court decided that there's a line between offense and defense. And of course, these questions arise only where Congress has not actually authorized the use of force. So the question is, where Congress is silent, when can the president on his own authority under the commander-in-chief clause or otherwise within Article 2, nonetheless direct the the armed forces of the United States to engage in in combat operations? So the prize cases is crystal clear that at least, at least, when the president is using a military force to, quote, repel sudden attacks, unquote, not only is he authorized, but in the words of the majority opinion, he is bound bound um, to meet force with force. Right. So there is a scenario, and we can just call it self-defense. And, and there's but obviously just when I got to mention Justice Greer again. You mentioned Justice Greer, who I believe managed Lincoln's campaign. Yep, it did and uh, you and know, got rewarded with a nice little seat on the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's, uh, who managed the Trump campaign? Can we get that person on the? Uh... You know, I don't remember because I feel like he really Trump didn't. Trump hardly knew him, and they didn't really have a relationship. Right, right. And right. I, I don't remember his name. Justice something or other. Then. Yeah. Well, back to the prize cases. So there's a line between <laughs> offense and defense, and so the assumption is: look, if what we're talking about is a direction to the military that triggers this debate at all, then it's not that the president's powerless when Congress hasn't acted. If it's a national self-defense scenario, then the president has not only the ability to act unilaterally, but the duty. Uh, so that introduces lots of margin questions about, well, when is it self-defense? What if you what if you act, you know, hours before the enemy attacks you? That's all exciting and interesting. But the, but the line drawing question that the price cases leaves less clearly addressed is, well, when do you get to this debate at all? And that's what's really at stake here. And it's not novel to this scenario. It's the same question that came up, for example, during the Obama administration in the military intervention against the Gaddafi regime, where Congress also had not authorized the use of, uh, of air power, but we nonetheless had a president direct it unilaterally anyways. And in both that case and in this case, the way it's framed is, well, it, you don't really get to the prize case's offense-defense distinction at all if what the military is being asked to do falls below the threshold of, quote, war. And I put quotes around war because war is being used here as a constitutional term of art that has apparently a narrower meaning than the average person on the street would ascribe to it. Is that yep, fair? Totally. Okay. So what? So the, the doctrinal test that's developed, um, not originally in this opinion, but it's certainly on display in this opinion, is supposed to be that, well, only certain things count as war. This opinion lays it out pretty clearly. I think exactly in line with what was said in the 2011 Obama-era OLC opinion on the Libyan use of force, talking about how what counts as war, it's a, it's a multi-factor test. You have to look at all the circumstances. Well, wasn't that talking about hostilities? No, there's 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 an, a separate war. There's okay. there's both, right? Okay. So just to back up on that, the hostilities discussion exactly. So now. there's a in the 2011 Libya context, you had a very similar and confusingly overlapping set of debates about what counts as war for purposes of this constitutional 
issue. And there, Carolyn Crass's OLC opinion is very similar to Steve Engel's opinion here. And then you had a separate bit where uh, Harold Coe had to testify in front of Congress about the parallel question of, well, never mind war, have we got hostilities as that term is used in the war powers resolution? Because if so, there was a clock issue at a certain point because the hostilities had gone on so long. And the rationale for narrowly defining hostilities was roughly the same rationale for narrowly defining war. In both cases, what the Obama administration's lawyers argued was that it's not war or hostilities. It's not war for our purposes if you don't have A, you don't have boots on the ground. B, the nature of the engagement militarily is sharply circumscribed in its purpose, sharply circumscribed in its duration, and the risk of escalation where those factors might change is sufficiently controlled. And, you know, if... If you're trying to define factors that are relevant for deciding, you know, what the degree of U.S. involvement is, yeah. those are not unreasonable so, factors. So the first two, I agree. Risk of escalation is tricky, right? Because, <laughs> Boy, yeah. Subjective, isn't it? It's so, like, right. So so no ground troops. I can look at something and say, yeah, there are no ground troops, right? Right. I can also probably look at something and say, yeah, that was a limited, that was a standoff strike, right? Limited in duration, limited in scope, right. limited in whatever. Or at least you hope it's going to be. Right. You don't really know what's going to happen next. Because of the risk of escalation. Exactly. Right. And so I, I just, I, feel, I mean, that strikes me as like post hoc rationalization. Like, risk, you know, well, did it escalate? No. Therefore, there was no risk of escalation. Like, right. I mean, you don't know how, how the, how the thing's going to respond when it's scratched. So I, that's right. I think there's something to that. But I also think that the, the boots on the ground point, though, as you say, it's certainly an objective test at first blush. A, just look at the fact pattern here. So we didn't put boots on the ground specifically for this set of airstrikes, but we have and had at that time boots on the ground all over Syria in theater for the intertwined and related purposes of combat against the Islamic State. And by the way, supporting SDF and other forces that were in fact fighting against the Assad regime. So it's not actually entirely clear how to operationalize a boots on the ground test in that setting. And frankly, I think the same thing probably was true back in 2011 in Libya, where you're not going to convince me that there wasn't a single U.S. special operator on the ground anywhere in Libya at that time. In any event, um, there's that problem. All right. So, but so, so, so just to, but to summarize, right? That's oh, wait, wait. But I want to say one more thing to problematize yeah, the boots yeah, on the ground thing. Yeah. Also, the fascination with a boots on the ground test has a certain core logic because that means, oh, so American personnel in harm's way. Uh, and war fighting, here, here's the thing, war fighting is becoming more and more of a standoff affair in some context where the U.S. is using force asymmetrically. That is, we're using force against uh, an opponent that really can't strike back in, with kinetic means against our personnel, but we can project power through air power maybe through cyber power or other standoff means. And so increasingly you'll have situations that are significant uses of air power, like Libya and, and here in Syria, where you don't need to have boots on the ground. And so if the test is, well, you got to have boots on the ground, then as we increase the uh, nature and scale of our capability to use standoff right. air power, the, the less likely it is that Congress has any role. Right. So it suggests it's, a, it's right, that, that basically technology will it's itself ratchet. ratchet the president's power. Power up vis-a-vis Congress. Bingo. So I, I want to, I think that let me let's bracket out two things here, right? So the first is the the narrow definition of war, right? Which I think is not obvious but also not brand new. 
Okay. It, yeah, perfect. It's okay. it, this is a problem. If if one listening to this thinks, okay, that's crazy. Right. Okay. Well, then you have a problem that's not Trump specific. It's a it's presidential recent, recent problem. Last couple of presidents, you know, maybe late Bush to slash early Obama. Well, I mean, could you it, it really could you tag out. Clinton with this for Kosovo? For Kosovo, yeah, absolutely. No, I think yeah. it, I think it's just the last modern twenty years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. Per- I want to be clear. I think that's perfectly fair. This is like, I mean, I, I think most of the OLC memo, yeah. right, did not strike me as Trump specific in any important way, right? That yeah. that we would have expected a very similar memo from Absolutely. any of the last. No, this presidents. this I I have a hard time seeing this as very different from the Crass memo from 2011. Okay, so let's pivot to, but that's just on the definition of war, right? Let's pivot to national interest. Right. So just to remind listeners, the way this works is, if. If you accept that the test, the threshold test is, do you have war and we or don't. not? And, and then you decide factually, okay, this is on the line of you don't. The idea is, okay. That, th- that, doesn't, mean all, that doesn't mean all gloves are off. Right. Now, this is where it gets kind of strange. So I, I'm really kind of cynical about this. I don't think the Me national too. interest test does any – I think nope. it's pure window dressing. Yep. Uh, and I'm not even sure logically how it's supposed to be doing work because once you've decided it's not war and you've decided that there is no uh, congressional role in this it's space. It's like the rational basis test. Like presumably there is some reason why we're using force and that reason has something to do with national interest. The, the idea that the president would be using force in a circumstance where there's not actually any particularly strong national interest is... M- maybe maybe a little less crazy today than it was for the rest of American history. Right, may, yeah, maybe. But but, but, it, yeah, but yeah. even today yeah, it yeah, still yeah, seems yeah. like, uh, you know, there's got to be a national interest if there committing. That might actually be a red line. Yeah, exactly. So, I'm not sure what else is these days. So having said that, I think, so both of us think that this is all window dressing and we don't want to go too far towards paying a ton of attention to it as a result. But nonetheless, let's take it on its own terms. Is there a way to flesh out the doctrinal meaning of the national interest test such that only certain relatively operationalizable categories of national interest trigger it, no. and then everything's out. No. Right. I mean, just no. I mean, listen, the, the memo tries. I mean, the memo identifies a couple of different things, like region. it was necessary for regional stability, right? Yeah. It was necessary to uh, to deter future use of chemical weapons. Yeah. Yeah. It's a third one I don't even remember anymore. Uh, it's sort of a general mitigation of humanitarian disaster. Fine. Uh, and all these things, to be clear, are great. I, they are, in fact, national interests. Right. They're sad. Listen, yeah. I agree. And so would just about any other thing that would explain why any rational person you know would be using force. You know what else is a national interest? Um, American superiority in all things, right? So let's go destroy infrastructure in other countries, right? I mean, let's. I'm just, this argument just—it's a reductio ad absurdum. It's just if. It, all, all virtually all uses of force are in some way, shape, or form in the national interest. So let me let me play devil's advocate here and throw out something I think at least a few people are or have been arguing, and that is, well, you can distinguish Libya in particular on the national interest grounds from the Syria intervention, yeah. and and thereby say that Obama acted properly and constitutionally, but Trump has not, by trying to argue that, well, in Libya, we were acting in uh, support of the UN charter system, whereas in Syria, we're actually acting contrary to so it. This to me so is do the you bi- think there's anything there? I do, because this to me is the so biggest... So I super don't, but let's go. Okay, good. So this, this to me is the biggest piece of the story, right? That the thing that I find totally missing from the Trump administration's analysis of its authority here is any discussion of the UN charter. Okay, right? so why should that matter? For so insofar the as the UN, the UN Charter is a duly enacted treaty of the United States. That means the Senate ratified it. It means it has the force of law of the United States. Okay. And so insofar as you could argue that the UN Charter implicitly, in some cases explicitly, authorizes uses of force on the soil of states' parties. We've talked about the Article 2 and Article 51 interaction before, right? Um, 
You could argue that when the Senate ratified the UN Charter back in 1945, it was incorporating as a matter of positive U.S. domestic law the authority to use force in at least some circumstances where it might not otherwise be lawful. And this argument was made often, for example, in the Korean War. Yep. Um, and it's sort of this this is the UN Charter as AUMF, or more specifically, UN Security Council resolutions as automatic AUMFs. And so, I think and I think backdoor that, incorporation. Right. And I think it's problematic because I think that circumvents the role of the House of Representatives insofar as they're supposed to be if you have a scenario that otherwise requires an AUMF or declaration of war, to say that, well, nonetheless, the Senate and the president, the treaty makers, yeah. brought in the UN charter system and it, surprise, surprise, you know, pre-delegated authority to use force whenever the Security but, Council wants so you to don't, do but, it. So you don't accept that the House's involvement in the UN Participation Act um, is enough to get the House sort of the, that, that box checked? Right. So, the, so, the, so the Truman administration position had been that, well, UN Participation Act is itself where the actual AUMFing occurred. Yeah, I guess I just have, I, I find the argument that the UN Participation Act is a blanket AUMF, yeah. not terribly okay, so, so appealing. Back up. So, I, I assume you do too. I, I, actually, I, I, I do too. So I want to put this in, in layers, right? If yeah. we were clearly across the war threshold, right, I would have real trouble with the notion that, you know, um, an extra one-sixth of the Senate could adequately replace the House when it comes to declaring war. Right. 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 The question is, if we, as I think we agree we are, short of the war threshold for constitutional purposes, is there legality from UN-sanctioned uses of force yeah. that is missing from uses of force that are not consistent, and indeed they're actually flatly inconsistent with the UN Charter? So there's two different places or ways that the UN Charter thumbs up or thumbs down could inflect this domestic separation of powers question. One could be it's a constraint in that right. if the action the president is otherwise empowered to do would violate international law itself, then the president doesn't have the inherent power yeah. to do it. Which, by the way, so, so just, just let me just take these one in order, yeah. right? On that reading, right, there's a real problem with the April 13th airstrikes because insofar as the use of force is inconsistent with the UN Charter, that would mean that even if the president might have otherwise had the power to use force, the our participation in the UN Charter precludes us from doing so. Right. So to, to, to surface it in a way that might be more familiar for listeners. Coherent. Uh, well, no, I, <laughs> I think it's very coherent the way you, you framed it, and it's very interesting. Uh, it's, this, it's really the same thing as saying, if the president is going to use force in Syria as a below-the-threshold-of-war inherent executive power, but it turns out what he wants to do would violate a federal statute, wouldn't you say that the president is bound by that statute? Or would you say instead that the commander-in-chief authority or whatever residuum of executive unilateral authorities at issue overrides that? Same deal here if you believe the predicate assumption that the charter forbade right. this particular use of force. So you said there's a second point. And then the other, way, the other way to look at it is, well, never mind the idea of the charter as a legal constraint uh, limiting the president, what about as an affirmative basis where you are charter compliant, getting you over the line of national interest? In other words, doctrinally fleshing out national interest such that you have adequate national interest if the Security Council has asked or authorized you to do something. Now, on that one, I think it's pretty clear that while it certainly may help a national interest argument to have Security Council authorization, 
Uh, and by the way, big asterisk on that for 2011 in Libya, because what the Security Council authorized right. and the scope of force that NATO and the United States employed arguably were two quite different things. Um, but sure, that bolsters your national interest arguments. But as we both talked about, we think that the national interest test is doing almost no limiting work anyways in these circumstances. So to me, that's an uninteresting argument and doesn't help distinguish Syria and Libya. The only interesting argument here is whether or not there's actually a UN charter always on constraint over the president's use of lethal, uh, use of military force? I would have thought the answer was yes. Um, the OLC memo implicitly, right, because it never even mentions the UN Charter, um, suggests that at least, so it suggests that, quote, for domestic law purposes, unquote, the answer is no, but of course the UN Charter is domestic law. So what if Congress had actually passed an AUMF here? And so it was, it was Congress the combined— is allowed, Congress is allowed to override international so law. The, right. That's the point I'm getting to. Then you have a last-in-time rule right. issue. So just to be clear about how that works, um, like any two statutes that might be incompatible or any two treaties, or in this case, a treaty then a statute, because treaties and statutes have equal stature in the, in the constitutional system— if there's an AUMF that would put us in violation, us being America writ large, if it puts us in violation of the UN Charter, well, it's the last in time. And um, it may or may not be a good thing, but it, but it wouldn't be a question about whether there's some problem of priority of the treaty. Um, so the reason it's interesting is precisely that we don't have a statute to overcome the prior presumptive exactly. treaty provision. All right, so where does that leave you? I mean, I guess, so my bottom line is, I think the opinion is largely what I would have expected. Right, that it's the it is it is the best possible arguments for these airstrikes, and I'm still not sold. So I think that the treaty does have an important omission. I would like to see the, the analysis. Opinion. Is that the treaty? Uh, yeah, <laughs> probably both. <laughs> the I, UN Charter has many important omissions. So I think that the two thousand the the recent OLC opinion on <laughs> Syria is, is missing a very important and interesting discussion of whether and to what extent the UN Charter is relevant to this yep. analysis. They yep. just don't talk yep. about it. Um, I, I should say, by the way, um, it, since I'm in the middle of planning and working on our, our casebook supplement for the summer, dear everybody who's about to release opinions that are going to be relevant to our supplement, can you do it soon? <laughs> I mean, not, like, you, guys you, know, ha- you guys have a website. You can throw these on the website oh after the fact. All right. Speaking of websites, so should we pivot off of OLC and to, to Gitmo and military detention land? Yes. We have a triptych. Again, sustaining member Dovey Mattis. You like that? Wow. Okay. Nice. So, so now we're going to really date and nerd and nerd and nerd test our listeners. If you know what a triptych is, I'm impressed. Oh, I think a lot of our listeners will know triptych. Okay. Uh, whether whether I or any of them can spell it, you know, that's, that's a different matter. T R I P T I K. Ah, very the well. The second T well, is capital. Well done. Well. All well right. Done, so too. let's start with Dover's and Mattis. So there actually has not been any. Judicial, like, there have been no intervening no, rulings. There's just a, a thing that happened. What a was thing the thing that, that happened? The thing that happened is remarkable. So um, at NYC Southpaw, who is one of my favorite anonymous Twitter accounts to follow, I, I, I have no idea who Southpaw is, but they are a very smart lawyer who I gather is in New York. Southpaw, maybe it's Andy Pettit. It's not Andy Pettit. Okay. Um, <laughs> Famed so, Yankee Southpaw from Texas. What a combo. Is this where we talk about Texas baseball going to the Super Regionals, by the way? It's better than talking about Mets baseball. <laughs> oy, yeah. oy. Okay, so um, on Friday, the Justice Department filed in Doe versus Mattis. Again, right, this is the U.S. citizen who is still being detained as an enemy combatant in Iraq, who has a merits hearing now before Judge Chutkin in a couple weeks. Um, this remarkable notice, Bobby, um, and the notice 
The respondent respectfully submits this notice in order to apprise the court of an inadvertent breach on the part of the Department of Defense of attorney-client communications between petitioner and his ACLU attorneys. DOD deeply regrets this incident, and counsel for respondent have conferred with petitioner's counsel regarding appropriate remedial steps to which petitioner's counsel has agreed as set forth below. So people initially, I think, kind of freaked Way out. Way overreacted to this. There was a lot of freak out. And of course, when you first hear that line, you think, oh my God, here we go again. And but then you another, read the declaration. So, right. so, so here's what basically happened, right? DOD did not realize that it was recording these conversations until some tech was like, wait, this doesn't sound like something we should be recording. Well, it's even more sympathetic than that, right? So originally, in right. order to facilitate communications between the ACLU lawyers and John Doe somewhere in a military facility, right. probably in Erbil or someplace in Iraq. The lawyers um, had to come down to D.C. Yeah, it was a big pain. They had to come to D.C. and they could get on this clearly unmonitored, everyone agrees, totally unmonitored private channel and they could have that communication. Right. So to help the lawyers, DOD made accommodations, which I believe the Southern District U.S. Attorney's Office, right, to provide for some kind of facility. I'm not sure where it is, but they, they said it, Manhattan. they could do it in Manhattan, so everyone was happy, but this this replacement or, or substitute more convenient channel was one that, like most, if not almost, I'm sure all communications. Internal DOD communications. And, yeah, coming out of this combat zone related facility are being monitored and recorded and then right. listened to by, by um, analysts. analysts. And some analysts uh, listens to a uh, John Doe slash ACLU lawyer call and says, wait, this, this doesn't seem right. And, and in a real nice, I think it's a real, really to the credit of the analyst and to all the people involved, everyone treated that properly. They all said, oh, wait, that's bad. That's bad, right? Bad, 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 Don't bad, Don't do bad. anything with it. Alarm Tell, bells, yeah. right? Segregate this this analyst. Analyst, you can't talk to anybody about what you heard. So this whole, this whole episode to me is an example of the system running very well. Correct. Incredible. Oh, I, listen, I want to be as clear as possible. I completely agree with you. Here's why I find this story so interesting. Um, our listeners might remember the story of sustaining member Al Nashiri, whose case is currently under abatement because his lawyers found a microphone in the room in which they were meeting with him and apparently have reason to suspect other efforts by the government to listen in on and interfere with their confidential communications with their client. Right? Contrast Doe versus Mattis, which is a civil habeas case, with Al Nashiri, which is a capital criminal case. And contrast the, oh my God, you know, our hair's on fire. We totally screwed up. We're coming totally clean, forthrightness of the Justice Department in Doe versus Mattis with the, no, you can't investigate that. No, you can't tell your client, no, we're not giving you another chance to appeal this. Stop talking about this in the military commission. It definitely doesn't look good for the military commission by contrast, although I will say that the, the situations aren't perfectly analogous in that in, in the Doe scenario, there unquestionably was, in fact, listening in on the communication, and that's what they're being so clear about, whereas in the military commission scenario, they are denying that there was any listening in. They're saying that was a dead right, microphone, right. But in the, a legacy But in the Doe microphone. scenario, to, us, to, to ameliorate concerns the ACLU lawyers have that this is actually nefarious. Yeah, they right? really leaned in to cooperate with ACLU to make sure ACLU was comfortable with how it was being ACLU handled. ACLU got to review the declarations before they were filed in court to make sure that the declarations were swearing to the things ACLU wanted to be wanted yeah. to have sworn. Right. So I, so, so so I'm not sure I agree with you that these are quite so far afield. Well, from I'm each not other. saying that I'm not saying they're unrelated. So I'm not denying that you should compare them. Yeah. I accept that. But I do think that there are some extraneous reasons why it's a slightly different thing. Maybe. But man, I mean, all I gotta say is like if if this is what the government does when it's totally innocuous. 
right? And when you and I agree, there's just no reason to suspect foul play here, right? Where this is just, by yeah. all accounts, this is just a perfect that's, accident. That's, that's accident's happened. Right? And the government acted exactly the way you and I both would have yep. wanted them to. The contrast right. with the secrecy and the hostility and the sort of, you know, hand-tying right. going on with right. regard to the very similar concern in the military commission context is, to me, striking. I'll suggest this about the military commission listening in on calls context. Um, one possible theory, uh, because they were listening on calls and there's a scandal waiting to unfold. Possibility two they weren't, but there is a military commission specific sort of intensive litigators mindset of fight everything to the last, you know, last nail, which contrasts really poorly with the very smart handling of the Dovey Mattis case. Um, Third possibility that that somehow in some way, there's some element of sensitivity to um, the Involvement of maybe the CIA so or say, otherwise. I think the third element adds a, adds a real sort of like complicating factor. My money is on the third element. Yeah. My money is on. I mean, because it's the in it, it uh, superficially it's the same two entities. It's DOD and DOJ. Yeah, but not really. But not really no. because there's CIA. So I think to me, I I'm I'm skeptical that there was actually listening in on calls at this point uh, on purpose in or an accident in the Syria. Although you never know with the milcoms. Um, but I think the second and third factors, the fight to the it last sure hill. We've bad. seen that endlessly, and it's the pennywise pound foolish yep. uh, litigation mentality yep. there uh, and then the the involvement possibly of the CIA at even if it's yeah. only historical yeah, yeah. as a complicating factor all right so speaking of fighting to the last hill right yeah, who's next Salmazi Salmazi let me quickly so Al Baluchi sorry really quickly so yeah. while, while we're still in sort of Gitmo land so Al Baluchi we talked about this last week this was the case where the D, where the CMCR the Court of Military Commission Review said oh my gosh we're in Corate so Al Baluchi has now used that as a justification for jumping over the CMCR and going right to the DC Circuit with a petition for mandamus that, that Al Baluchi is entitled to a preservation order with regard to evidence obtained from a CIA black site while he was detained and allegedly tortured there. So this is before a panel? Do, is it assigned? I don't. I haven't yeah. seen the panel yet because um, it was just filed, I think, on Friday. Yeah, I'll, I'll file this in my mind under the heading of, see, yet more evidence that the CMCR is just a delaying mechanism. I know, right. I mean, isn't it nice to actually get these things quickly to the D.C. Circuit? Oh, heavens. All right. Um, speaking of, though, that incorporate CMCR ruling, if folks remember from last week, that's how we discovered that Judge Herring is still serving on the CMCR. Judge Herring, who's retired from the Marines. Army. Oh, from the Army. Yeah. Sorry. Big mistake. Um, retired from the Army, but is a still apparently serving well, so, or not? Well, I mean, so CMCR this is, judge. Okay. So so let me apologize, listeners. I, I just, if you want to turn away from the next five minutes, go ahead. But I, I got to talk about Dalmazi for a minute. You, you got to milk it while you can because the opinion still hasn't still dropped. Still hasn't dropped. All right. So yesterday. Oh, for new listeners, Steve represents Dalmazi. I'm, <laughs> I'm counsel of record to the petitioners in Dalmazi. Yeah. Therefore, I'm even more biased than usual. Um, okay. So as folks might recall, we had sent a letter to the Supreme Court apprising them of the CMCR's order back on May 23rd that noted, as you just said, that Judge Herring is apparently continuing to serve on the CMCR despite having retired from the Army as of August 1st, 2017. Now, just to put things in context, part of why this is a big deal is because one of the central points of disagreement between the petitioners, me, in Dalmazi and the government is whether a military officer who is appointed to the CMCR therefore holds two offices, his military commission and his CMCR judgeship, that's our position, or whether it's just one office. 
Um, does your does your case go away if it's one office? Um, doesn't go away, but it gets a lot harder. Okay, right. The the statute. Some of the statutory issues, I think, really fall right. in the government's favor, and then you have to reach the messy constitutional question. So the government have been saying, hey, it's just one office. Right. So we've been arguing pretty heavily all along that no, it's that that maybe that was true when a military officer is assigned to a judgeship, like a military officer who is assigned to the Army Court of Criminal Appeals, for mm-hmm. example. But that once you're appointed. By the president, conferred by the Senate, you receive a commission to that office. Yeah, you've that, got a military commission in one frame in your office, and, and, and you have a CMCR yeah. commission in the other, right? Those are different commissions. Um, and that it's, they're more than just symbols, right? The commissions are— They're the on, office. They're just the office. ask William Marbury. Indeed. Okay. So um, we filed a letter basically saying, hey, Supreme Court, you might want to look at this order from the CMCR, which seems to suggest that Judge Heron, even though he retired from the Army, still serving on the CMCR. I was not expecting the government to respond to our letter. Lo and behold, um, yesterday afternoon, the government filed this letter in the Supreme Court. Dear Mr. Harris, because you always address these letters to the clerk of the Supreme Court. Um, I'm going to dispense with the the introductory sentences. Yeah, get to the heart. The Department of Defense has confirmed to this office that Judge Herring retired on August 1st, 2017. All right. Okay. Um, judge Heron was placed on the CMCR as an appellate military judge within the meaning of 10 U.S.C. 949-BB4. Uh, that provision states that an appellate military judge may be reassigned from the CMCR if inter alia he retires or otherwise separates from the armed forces. As demonstrated by the briefing in this case, however, there is disagreement about whether 949-BB4 applies to the appellate military judges who were appointed to the CMCR by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate, here comes the punchline. Are you sitting down? I am. There is thus some dispute about Judge Herring's post-retirement status. Period. In, indeed there is. Okay, is wait, there? That's, well, but what are they saying? Like, okay. what is? What are they... What do they assume that the uh, the persuaded reader of that letter therefore concludes? So let me start at the beginning. I have no idea why the government filed this letter, right? If this was what they were going to say, why I, do it at well, all? I do it at all. Yeah. Like if you're going to say, basically saying like, yeah, this is crazy, huh? Well, no. So that's he, how it reads to me. So it reads to me like we're not taking a position. Right. 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 So why would you file a letter? Right. But here's the thing. There is thus some dispute about Judge Herring's post-retirement status. I read that sentence to say, there is thus some dispute about whether Judge Herring really is still allowed to serve on the right. CMCR. Right, Well, okay, he's been there for 10 months. <laughs> it seems like a problem. Seems like a problem for the government's position and for its claim that there is some dispute about his status, that what? he's just been... Hanging out there, well, doing and, his job. And and has he had involvement in, in any panel decisions during that time I don't, period? I'm not a, no no published decisions because we didn't find out he was even there. Until, yeah, yeah. But I don't know what he's doing behind the scenes or or if there are cases pending disposition. But is it fair to say that the government has basically acknowledged it? Yeah, there may be a problem with him having played this role these past ten months. Well, We're but here's trying the, so, to figure that so out. So the government. I mean, I think I take the government to be saying, "Hey, Supreme Court, if we the government are right." Right, then that probably means Herring really shouldn't still be a judge on the CMCR. Um, which, of course, is conceding that if you believe that he really is still a judge on the CMCR, then we, the petitioners, are actually probably right. So it does seem problematic. Now, do you think this increases the possibility that you guys will get uh, kicked over for yes. re-argument? Yes. So I, I, I said— Or, I, or more, maybe more to the point, rebriefing. Well, maybe both. I mean, I, I said to um, to a, our mutual friend Leah Lippman from UC Irvine um, about a month ago that I thought there was about a five percent chance 
uh, that the court would decide the constitutional jurisdictional question and then uh, set the rest of the case for re-argument. Um, right. I mean, if you look at what the Supreme Court did yesterday, right, the two, the three big headlines from the Supreme Court yesterday were all dodges. Yeah. Right. And so if you really think that the court's just trying to find its way out of all of the messes this term. Um, yeah, I, I think we've gone from 5% to maybe 20% um, that will get an opinion saying either, yes, there is appellate jurisdiction over CAF or no, there isn't. If, of course, if it says no, then we're done. I think it's fair to say that the court really doesn't like shifting fact patterns in the midst of a, a situation like this where this thing's been briefed, it's well, been argued, the, so, so and now you have these like right. uncertain things arising that seem material in fuzzy ways, and the government itself isn't quite sure what its position on it is. So this is, so, so this is what's frustrating to me, right? What's frustrating to me is um, I don't think the fact pattern has shifted. Like we have been, I think, ruthlessly right. consistent. It's been clarified about in a what our position. Way. Right. We've been ruthlessly consistent about what our position has been all along. What we believe is the correct answer. The government is now being forced to contend with facts on the ground yeah. that seem inconsistent with the government's position, and consistent with ours. And the government's response is, "We're not sure what to make of these facts." Well, what I like about this is it increases the chances that you'll have a second oh, Supreme gosh. Court oral argument. Yeah. Repeat cycle. I mean, listen, I'm not going to be, like, really down on a second argument, but, you know. You'd prefer to win now. I'd prefer to win now. I mean, I, I, I really think that this development shows the central, like, the whole case doesn't rise and fall on this. I mean, I want to be clear on that. There's still residual yeah. questions. But this really underscores the, the, the basic point of departure between we, the petitioners, and the government, which is, you know, the fact that these judges, these military officers, were appointed not assigned to the CMCR is of such meaningful legal significance. And the government is continuing to say, well, we're not really sure it is. So <laughs> It's really something. The real question, Bobby, is do, do we respond to this letter? Like, do we say— Do the rules of the court allow you to do rules, a server reply? So the Supreme Court's rules, believe it or not, are very quiet— about post-argument filings. Yeah. Um, there's just like norms around them. There are no rules. And so in theory, right, we'd be well within our rights to write a letter as long as it wasn't just reiterating. Hey, I'm sure all the justices listened to the show. I think you just, you know, said all that needed to be said. What I wish to do is like... Hello, justices. I should tweet I should tweet out, Dear Supreme Court justices who are hiding on Twitter, please listen to this week's episode of the National School Law Podcast starting around the 40 minutes. It's mark. hard It's hard to at them if you don't know they're, Indeed, you know, they're hidden. Indeed, it really is. But, but maybe if I just, you know, hashtag SCOTUS, you know. Yeah, good luck hashtag, with that. Hashtag burner account. I think the way to think about it is there is at least one clerk out there who's got this one on their plate. Oh, yeah. And they're paying attention to the limited amount of public and, and, and discussion. What, and come on, I mean, what are the odds that the clerk who has Dalmazi doesn't listen to this podcast? Oh, I mean, I think all the clerks... Hello, clerks. Hello, clerks. We, we love y'all. All right. Anyway, all, all this is to got? say, like, I mean, yes, I think this raises this, the possibility of re-argument, but it shouldn't. Like, what I think is really yeah. going on here... So, I actually read this letter as um, reflecting a disagreement between DOD and DOJ about what the government's position actually is. That seems very likely. Right, that, that DOD wants to say, no, the law is X, and DOJ wants to say, no, the law is Y, and the issue's answer is, we'll just say... There's some dispute. There's some dispute. <laughs> Passive voice. We're not saying who. The, the, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. <laughs> uh, the old, that's the best. It, that'd be an issue one. The best uses, most classic uses of passive voice. Which I think I, mistakes were made has to be number one. What movie is that from? Oh. Okay. Mistakes were I thought made. it was. Was it from a movie? I thought that was just like multiple episodes of political scandal in the past. No, but uh, there's like, there's a famous example of this. Like, you know, right. well, what do you call this? 
All right, mistakes were made. Somebody add us. With okay, but wait, you know what the all-time greatest use of passive voice in in Supreme Court land is? Oh, uh, let's hear it. Okay, in the actual opinion in Marbury versus Madison, which is unfortunately usually edited in case books to exclude this part, Chief Justice Marshall, who was of course Bobby the Secretary of State, who was responsible for sealing and delivering William Marbury's commission. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is You're describing right about this. the facts You're right. of the case in the opinion for the court. And he switches, he describes how Marbury's commission is, how the president signed Marbury's commission, which, by the way, he only knows because he was a personal witness to it. Um, and then he switches to the passive voice to say, at which point the great seal was affixed to the commission. Was affixed. And, by and, and, he, switches, and he switches to the passive voice as I, as I teach all of my 1Ls, right? He switches to the passive voice to avoid referring to himself. himself. <laughs> so I, awesome. I, I, I can't I can't think you could do better in a legal in legal no, that's land. Good. Yeah, John Marshall, smart cat. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, all I have to say is my head exploded. I love it. Your your head explodes so often. No, no. So part of the joys so of this. Twitter thought that my head was going to explode after the Doe versus Madison letter, and my yeah, response no. I was like, no, yeah, this is no. this is how the government's supposed to respond when it makes a mistake, right? My head's exploding because this is not how they responded in Nashiri. But this letter made my head explode. That's pretty awesome. I was in Trader Joe's with Maddie. And like Maddie's like, Daddy, put your phone away. And I'm like, one second, Daddy. <laughs> I must, I must put down this. Uh, what, what's a classic Trader Joe's item? What uh, do you always this get? box of this box of Trader Joe's brand cereal. There you go. Were you at the one over in the, the Sea Home area? Yeah. Have you gone into the Baked Bear? There's now one of the. Are you kidding? You've have been I there got, multiple times. Multiple times. Yes. Karen, Karen is 38 weeks pregnant. This is the only time. Oh, you good can, boy. Like, you know, <laughs> totally go no guilt on ice cream sandwiches after every meal. Uh, I prefer Mujos. I gotta say, and Baked Bear's really? good, but. I Kind of prefer Mojo's. Have you done the bowl at Baked Bear with the, the cookie brownie on the, the bottom, bottom or the yeah. brownie on the bottom and then toppings on top of your No, ice but in honor of you guys, I think I will this weekend. There you go. <laughs> Rock on. All right. Um, really quickly, let's pivot to our litigation roundup. So yeah, lightning of, round. Speaking of Guantanamo-ish litigation, right, we had these two interesting decisions last week by a court we don't really talk about much on this podcast, the European Court of Human Rights. They've weighed in on some black site matters, and it's not the first time they've done it, no. right? That, so that's why we're not going to make too big a deal about this. It's uh, it's an extension of prior jurisprudence. Right, so there's Al Nashiri versus Poland. I think was the first big case. There's also right. I think there's one there's one litigation involving Macedonia. I think if I remember correctly, is is it fair to say that the ECHR has not hesitated to hold member states accountable? For what they view as human rights, ECHR violations. By, by, through, because, by dint of their complicity in the CIA's RDI program. Yeah, knowingly allowing the CIA to run And the, la uh, and the latest two centers. countries are Lithuania and Romania in the Abu Zubaydah and right. Nashiri cases, respectively. Um, I, you know, the only thing I want to say about this, and, and I, I wonder if you feel differently, um, the fact that you can have a court like the European court holding countries accountable is, of course, a unique feature of the European human rights system that is not really available in the U.S. system. But the actual legal violations are violations of, of, of Article 3 of the U.N. Convention against uh, – Article 3 and other provisions, right, of the U.N. Convention against torture. Uh, now, I don't know. This. Is, is it based on CAT yes. and not on the ECA – both. The they're, European they're, Convention on Human uh, Rights? My understanding is that the court found violations of both CAT and the European Convention on Human Rights. And at least with regard to CAT, CAT is the law of the United States, right? And so if these countries were complicit – Right, right in violations of CAT stands to reason 
So are we. Well, I don't think that logic holds up because isn't it also true that the ECHR considers life sentences to be violations of the same provisions in general? And we certainly don't think that that therefore determines that issue for us. Um, yeah, it's although, just a, it's, you know, it's, a, it's persuasive authority, yeah, perhaps, okay, but certainly enough. certainly not a control. No, but I, I, that's why I say once again, I'm reminded of the troublesome specter that the only courts anywhere in the world that have actually weighed in on the legality of any aspect of the CIA's RDI program is the European Court of Human Rights. There you go. Well, other courts are weighing in on other things. Ah. We've got a fascinating one out of the U.S. Army Court of Criminal Appeals. Speaking of military justice, look at you with a, a court martial case. I know. This is so out of character. But, of course, it's it's uh, it's about uh, Chelsea Manning. It's it's United States versus Bradley Manning. And then there's parentheses, uh, a.k.a. Chelsea Manning. And this is uh, a situation that's kind of interesting because I think a lot of people assume, well, that, that case is over, right? Because President Obama didn't President Obama Pardon Chelsea Manning. Uh, President Obama, pardon me? Commu- com- pardon me, commuted the sentence for Chelsea Manning. Chelsea Manning's convictions uh, on a variety of charges in the court martial process still stand, and this was an attempt to get uh, an array of those charges, uh, the convictions on those charges, overturned. So it, it's just kind of interesting. I'll give a very quick uh, rundown. There was an interesting Computer Fraud and Abuse Act charge uh, that raises an issue that for those of us who follow the CFAA in its uh, sort of more more conventional uh, civilian court context, you know that the, the courts disagree, the circuits are split on this question of when someone has access to a system but then uses it to acquire and then use information in ways that are definitely not what the owner of the system intended. Is that in, is that in excess of authorized access or not? And there's there's all sorts of interesting case law on this. Um, suffice to say that the the issue was presented here, and then the court uh, the court of criminal appeals decided. You know, we don't actually have to come down on this because we agree with the judge below that the particular method of software uh, that. Manning used to get access to all the State Department data was itself actually a different enough way of accessing the information that it's not really about the subsequent use, that is, the disclosure to WikiLeaks. It's actually the method of accessing the system was itself a violation of the access. And and what had happened was for Manning to get all those documents out of the State Department database, the the expected and authorized way would have involved manual manual downloads right. and a lot of uh, a lot of bells and whistles that would have been cumbersome and probably detected or maybe detected. And Manning used software to circumvent that usual process and kind of do a wholesale download to a device. Um, and that was different in kind and, and for good reason was not what the system was designed to allow or, or to authorize. And that was considered to be unauthorized access. So no luck there. There was an attempt to get the Espionage Act charge, 18 U.S. Code 793E, uh, overturned or the conviction on that count overturned on the ground that the phrase relating to national defense was unconstitutionally vague. Court disagreed. Uh, and then there was a First Amendment overbreath argument that the court uh, also rejected on the grounds that there is no First Amendment right to engage in unauthorized disclosure of classified information, no matter how important you think it is to do that. And I don't think that's a surprise at all. I think it's consistent with other case law as well. So Manning loses there. Um, Steve, what else have we got in our litigation roundup? Um, we've got, let's see, the dismissal of both of the Kaspersky lawsuits by Judge Kalarkatelli. Oh, yeah. So this is this is something we talked about when it went down. Way back when. There, there's two things that the government did, and this is all involving the Russia-based uh, 
information infosec company, Kaspersky Labs, which is a you know a, a very good set of products with a large market around the world, including at least until recently, lots of customers in the U.S. at the business and private levels, but also in the U.S. government. And among other things, one of their flagship products, an antivirus software that uh, works like other antivirus softwares, uh, that results in lots of information, lots of data about its customers being available to the company. And the company's got that data, well, in Russia. And for many years, there's been speculation or charges that uh, Eugene Kaspersky himself, or at least some within his company, too cozy, to put it mildly, with Russian security services, perhaps acting as a as a cutout or an agent for, for those services. Uh, that's the strong version of the accusation. Uh, the softer accusation and the, the more, un- more incontestable one is, look, uh, even if the company is trying its level best to be at arm's length from the government, it's still subject to Russian law. And Russian law provides the government with sweeping access to data that Russian-based companies have in Russia or can access from Russia. And therefore, whether you think they're in bed with Russian security services or you just recognize that they're subject to the coercion of the Russian legal system, um, it's unsafe for U.S. government and indeed other entities, but certainly U.S. government entities, to be running uh, Kaspersky Labs AV on their systems. And so on that logic, the Department of Homeland Security in September of last year issued what's called a binding operational directive. Basically, this is a, a statutorily authorized authority of DHS to boss around the other parts of the government in the non-intel, non-military sectors uh, regarding their infosec practices. And they use that authority here to ban Kaspersky products off of U.S. government systems. And then not long after that, Congress got involved and doubled down on this by using uh, a provision of the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2018 and banning U.S. government use of Kaspersky products there. Uh, So Kaspersky filed suit, Steve, on both those grounds, separate suits, but they end up being treated together here. Uh, And it's kind of interesting. As to the DHS action, they argued that this is a violation of their procedural due process rights under the Fifth Amendment. So the claim being we have a property interest here and you've taken it away from us, you've harmed us without adequate process. And then secondly, an APA violation. So so basically process-based complaints. But then as to the NDAA, they said, ah, that singled out us, Kaspersky Labs, for a punishment bill of attainder. And so Judge Kalarkatelli has rejected all these arguments. as to the uh, Bill of Attainder argument, it's actually a pretty interesting opinion. If you're into the Bill of Attainder, you'll be treated to this nice doctrinal survey of how you know, like, the, the two elements you're looking for are specificity as to a particular legal entity. And, and punishment. And everyone agreed yeah, that that was yeah. covered here. Punishment. What counts as punishment? And, so, and, 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 and not all negative things are punishment. Exactly. And, and there's there are three different tests, and Color Catelli goes through, says, look, you can do this by historical analogy. You can look at sort of the functional reality, or you could look at the motivation of the legislature. But she says, we don't have to pick amongst these three tests. They all point in the same direction. This was an action Congress undertook to secure the systems of the U.S. government. And the fact that it feels punitive to Kaspersky and has punitive-like effects doesn't change the fact that this is undertaken for security and counterintelligence reasons. Um, so not surprisingly, not a bill of attainder. So that goes away. And then as to those process claims about the DHS action, well, they go nowhere because the court says Kaspersky can't have standing because Kaspersky can't show it's harmed because Kaspersky is going to suffer whatever harms it's going to suffer because of the statute, regardless of what happens with the DHS directive. 
So they lose, and that's that. I think that there, there's not even going to be, I think, any you know circuit appeal. Maybe maybe Kaspersky will take it to the right. circuit, but, but it's I not, doubt it's not going to be a hard case. No, no. Yeah. So that so that's over. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And so is our litigation roundup. It is. Let me let me just note a few things though. Oh. There, I like to do the DOJ. Oh yeah, the DOJ. Uh, roundup. The, the creature and, report. And here I have uh, the, cre- the creature report from the Octonauts, by the way. Thank you, listeners. Um, we've got a whole series of you know the weekly batch of terrorism and national security related convictions and pleas. Um, it, it really is amazing when you monitor this on a week to week basis how consistently successful DOJ is. I'll just flag a few. You got a 53-year-old man from Honduras named Vicente Solano who's living in Miami, temporary protected status. Um, he decides he wants to get involved with the Islamic State. Um, he's now just received a 17-year sentence for attempting to provide material support. Uh, Steve, uh, the way they got this guy, he had told a confidential informant. A spy. A, a spy. A spy. I, Conf- mean, I mean, aren't, aren't all confidential informants spies? Isn't that what the internet Very is? unusual, isn't it, to yes. have a confidential yes. informant? I mean, how, I, I, can you imagine the government using a confidential informant? This whole thing's suspicious. How I mean, dare they? Yeah. Well, they did it here, and, they, and that spy determined that uh, Solano was, in fact, trying to join the Islamic State and wanted to carry out a mall bombing in Miami. Um, and so he'll be in jail for a long time. Then he'll be removed to Honduras. But but wait, I mean, if he was spied on, doesn't that defeat the whole legitimacy of the entire investigation? Uh, clearly, clearly. Now, uh, we've got a 26-year-old uh, California man, Everett Jameson, uh, who had once uh, joined the Marines, completed basic, but was uh, later discharged for failure to disclose his medical history. Well, yesterday, Steve, he pled guilty to attempting to provide material support to the Islamic State. How do we know? Well, he was interacting online with a... Confidential informant. No, no, no. It's a spy. It's a spy. Sorry. A spy online where he was declaring his interest in, you know, supporting the Islamic State, uh, how he had military training, and he wanted also to arrange a bombing and a shooting. Uh, He'll be sentenced this fall. The plea agreement calls for the max 15-year sentence. Uh, there's other stuff that's interesting. You've got Siobhan Patel, 27-year-old Virginia man. Monday, he got a five-year sentence for basically passport fraud and, and false statements on his application to join the U.S. military. It's hard to tell what was going on in this case. The limited amount of public information suggests that uh, this guy had gone to China in 2016 and then from there went to Jordan. The Jordanians arrested the guy, um, and it, there's a reference here to him having told an informant, sorry, spy, an informant, he was trying to join the uh, the jihad, presumably to connect to the Islamic State, but at least armed jihad. He came back to the United States and at that point tried to join the military. That's when he got arrested. Um, we could go on. There's other cases, but I think the point is made. Lots of spying out there. And it is a common and really critical part of law enforcement investigations. It's not, I mean, listen, it's not spying. I mean, it's I, not. It's 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 the use of informants, which is bread and butter. I mean, in these so, investigations. so so you know, Andy McCarthy is out there trying to convince anyone who will listen to him that that the words don't matter here. And forgive me for sort of dissenting, but words matter. Right? Well, words clearly matter because the relentless attempt to inject the word spy into the conversation, I think, is being used to delegitimize the no, investigation. Right. It, clearly, the people using the the phrase "spygate" in the word "spy." They believe that it has pejorative connotations. No doubt about it. All right. Well, speaking of Trumplandia, let's get into it. What what have we got in the realm of Trumplandia this week? Oh, you know, nothing other than a, a, a 20-page memo from Trump's lawyers to Mueller that was 
so apparently the timeline is the Times had had this for a little while, and they've you know they're almost ready to go to press, and they call the White House for a comment, right? Um, and Trump is so pissed off about this that he tweets in the middle of the afternoon on Saturday that he's so tired of the fake news leaking, you know, leaking his letters, um, to le- leaking his lawyer's letters. So he pre-complained. So he pre-complained, which of course prompts the Times to push the button on publishing this huge story. On the middle, in the middle of a Saturday afternoon, which isn't even, sur- it's not even the funniest part though, because the funniest part is that Fox News, which right. also has the document, then comes in after the like time, an hour later, and, and touting it as exclusive. <laughs> well, okay, so who who put this document out there? Um, I mean, I don't think there's any question who put this document out there. Someone on Trump's legal team leaked the document because the document itself is quite clearly not written for Mueller. No, right, the, the, the footnotes are the footnotes are like a, a litany of of you know uh, Fox News this Wall Street Journal editorial Andy McCarthy that, that. Uh, my favorite is the one place where they where they invoke a quote scholar which was actually a student right I mean now now don't get me wrong students hey, can I, write scholarship I've known some great ones um, eh, you know but but you know I mean guys. If all you've got is a student note and nothing else. Okay, so point number one is this almost certainly was released by the Trump legal team because it advances in full-throated fashion all of the Trump positions, legal, rhetorical, et cetera, on on a variety of things. So the letter takes on a lot of different topics. Um, What are the things that made it sort of newsworthy? So uh, I think the biggest one was that the president could pardon himself. Um, right, and of course it, we don't need the letter for that because now we have a tweet. Right, um, we also have um, claiming that the pre- so so there's the argument that we know is out there, right? That the president can't lawfully obstruct justice because if it's a federal investigation, he's in charge of it. Right, right. so he can't obstruct himself. Right, um, you know, I actually think that's an interesting debate, and, I, and it's it, of all of these things, it's actually the one that has the most legs to me. So, so the idea is you can't obstruct justice because at the end of the de- the day, you could decide to, to under enforce. You could decide I don't want to enforce in this case, right. and and to me the the problem with that, it maybe is one of framing, right? Because I think of it as maybe there's something to that as a matter of obstruction, but doesn't the president have a constitutional obligation that, by the way, um, that fellow conservatives, we had really been pressing for a long time about the importance of the duty to take, the duty constitutionally to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Now, to not enforce in order to protect yourself from investigation, it doesn't seem like too much of a stretch to me, to say that that's not really included in whatever latent or implicit under enforcement power the president I, I enjoys. I agree. I agree, but at least at least it's not frivolous, right? As opposed yeah. to, for example, the memo's long discussion of the wrong obstruction statute, right? So, so, <laughs> that's so awesome. the memo spends a fair amount of time analyzing uh, 18 U.S.C. Section 1505 um, and why the FBI's investigation isn't an agency proceeding under the statute. The, 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 the surely, if there actually is a viable obstruction case here, it's under 1512. 1512 is not 1505. Uh, it's, it's hard math, I uh, know. But, but they both start with 15. They do. It's very confusing. Mm. They're in the same chapter. Um, okay, so there's Plus, al- also... Horseshoes and hand grenades, my friends. Um, Trump also took... Not in the memo. Uh, oh, the, sorry. The memo also makes a very broad claim about the D.C. Circuit's 1997 ruling in so-called in-race sealed case. Everyone mm-hmm. calls it SB because it was SB, about right. Secretary SB. Um, and the memo basically claims that SB stands for the proposition that... The president cannot be hit, uh, hit with a grand jury subpoena unless the prosecutor can show that there is literally no other means to obtain the testimony and that the testimony is necessary, right, for the proceeding to go forward. Um, I think that's a dramatic overreading 
of SB. So SB does say that in the face of a claim of executive privilege, a prosecutor needs more than just the ordinary relevancy showing, right, to justify mm-hmm. a subpoena. Um, and, that, and that in the face of a valid claim of executive privilege, um, the prosecutor should have to be able to show that there's no other way of obtaining the relevant documents. That to me is common sense, right? That, you know, if you have another mechanism, if, there's, yeah. if someone else has the material and you can get it from them without litigating right, the they don't bother the president. Right. Um, two big differences here. One, that was a subpoena for documents, not for testimony where there had been specific privilege claims asserted, right? The president could be submitted to testify on a whole lot of things over which he couldn't have any possible privilege claim, whether because it happened before he was president or because it's stuff that he's talked about in the public so much that he's waived any privilege claim. Right. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, with regard to the stuff Mueller presumably wants to talk to Trump about, it's mostly stuff that he can't get elsewhere because it's mostly what Trump said or thought right. or believed. Yeah, so it doesn't even pass its own test, right. even even as framed. Right. Um, and then last but not least, the president took to Twitter yesterday, Bobby, while I was in the middle. I'm on air doing a segment, right, about the president's tweets when he tweets again saying the whole special counsel investigation, counsel, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, uh, is unconstitutional. Um, this is the Steve Calabresi theory that we talked about last time. Right, it's right. Just no, not it's, it's, worth. It's, it's not a it's not a strong right. argument to the effect. The claim is that the pres, that the special counsel should be categorized as a principal officer of the United States who's been unconstitutionally appointed, um, and it it just doesn't seem like a very good argument at all. Nope. Um, now I want to just two quick things if I may before we run off we'll jump off this topic. The first is. I think the point of the memo was not actually to stake out these legal positions. I think the point of the memo was to try to bully Mueller publicly, right? To say, look, I could pardon myself. Yeah. I could fire you. Shots across I the I could bow. shut down your investigation. Therefore, I don't have to put up with any of your you know, mischief. So don't press me too hard so on this. Don't press me too hard. And my response to that is, that's not how this works, right? You have these powers, but if you actually took the steps of exercising those powers, presumably that would provoke a reaction on Capitol Hill that has not yet been provoked. Until that happens, yeah. Mueller has the power to do what he's doing, buddy. Get with the program. So I, it, it doesn't surprise me as what amounts to white-collar investigative letter litigation yeah. practice to sh- send shots across the Wave bow. The, right, right. St- stir the cage. But there are two quotes I just cannot resist getting because oh. uh, these really jumped out at me. Um, quote, and this is from, I think, the uh, the prior letter. The there first two letter, the letters, January yeah. letter. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, having him testify demeans the office of the president before the world. Nope. Well, I'm nope. not so much concerned with the fact that that logic doesn't hold up because it doesn't demean the office, but the idea that we need to, that they are concerned with demeaning right. the office of the president know, before right? the world. And then in the same spirit, another quote uh, that ends with, that we may preserve the dignity of the office of the president. How's that going? I am all for being concerned about the dignity and the- But if uh, that's the standard, we've got some other We've got bigger problems. About. Yes. Okay. Uh, we promised we'd say something about uh, Manafort. Manafort apparently uh, was was texting uh, some other witnesses in the case in violation of the terms of his bail, uh, reaching out to other witnesses in the case, and they are saying, I believe, urging him. He was urging them, you know, basically to to. I don't know if they, if they actually are claiming he urged them to perjure themselves. Or if it was just sort of a general pressure. Whatever the hell it is. Whatever it is, this guy is is. What do you think? Is he going to go to jail? Are they yes. going to revoke bail? Yes, he's going to jail. So this is 
co-timed almost but perfectly way, with his, his with spouse being on TV oh, on yeah. the, the what apparently is this recurring feature now on Fox where right. you get to go on. Advertise for a pardon. Yeah, yeah. So uh, is, is he going to get a pardon or is he going to so, go to jail and start flipping? Doesn't it strike you that his behavior in reaching out to these potential witnesses um, doesn't seem like the behavior of someone who's expecting to be pardoned? Right, because if, if you're I'm not sure you well, I just think you don't know, yeah. right? Like if you're if you're inclined to do all the things he is accused of having done, then it's no real surprise he would try to pressure other people to say yeah. or do things that will help his case. But here's the irony: and he's not going to count entirely on the pardon possibility. All right, so Bobby, let's see if you've been keeping track at home. What statute did Manafort allegedly invoke by reaching out to these witnesses? Oh, you tell me. You're the, you're the master of these details. Section fifteen twelve. 1512. You mean not 1505? Not 1505. <laughs> well, at least, at least somebody's paying attention. Uh, baller. Um, <laughs> all right. So so with that, I mean, I just, oh my gosh. I, we There's so much more to say about what's going on right now, but we should probably just do there, some there, are, there are other podcasts for that. In, we in are the podcasts that can give you a review of Paul Simon. Well, and so we got, I asked people on Twitter what they wanted us to talk about, right? So some of the subjects were J.R. Smith in game one of the NBA finals. <laughs> that poor dude. Um, yeah, so J.R. Smith dribbling, clock, starting to dribble Clock, up. score, ball. This is not hard. Like, when you're when you're growing up playing these sports, you are you, 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 you think about situational awareness. Like, if I get the ball, what am I going to do? When you play baseball, right? It's like, okay, if the ball is to me, I'm doing... You, you're not... It's not... I mean, you're telling yourself in your head what you're going to do so that you don't have to, like, think on the spot. They gave us a great meme. Yes. Like I said, the look... The LeBron, on, the LeBron the, look. The LeBron <laughs> look. And that, that's, like, almost like a dance move now, just, like, to point like that. By the way, don't hate me, but... It was a block. LeBron, LeBron, LeBron was guilty of a blocking foul. You know, there, the, the the refereeing was not so great. It never is. Yeah. Um, uh, one of our listeners wants me to talk about the the Washington Capitals being on the edge of winning the Stanley Cup. So I just want to say, anyway. the only thing I will say about the Caps is that it would be so capital appropriate for the Caps to blow a three one lead and lose the Cup in seven. It, it sounds like you heard it here first. I do think that the Vegas, the Golden Knights are a neat story about the city of Las Vegas. Yep. Um, I I do not understand how that actually happened. You got a team that was an expansion well, because, team. Well, because the, because the expand because the NHL super over over assisted. Yeah. Um, the Golden Knights in their expansion draft. It was like like you know when the Mets came along in 1962. Right, right, right. right um, the expansion draft was like, hey, one player. Right. You can pick one player like and and each team can protect like their top 15 players. Right. So you can take someone off like the bottom of the roster. That's right. not what went on here. Right. I mean, the Mets' first pick in the in the 1962 was, was I think Hobie Landreth. Right, uh, uh, Obi. Right, exactly. Because Casey Stengel said, if you don't have a catcher, you'll have a lot of pass balls. Um, <laughs> you do actually have to have one. Yeah, but then the then the Cole forty five took Rusty Staub. Oh, slightly better pick. Hey, didn't the Mets draft Nolan Ryan? We did, and then we traded him. Who did we get in return? Uh, Jim Fergosi. Oh, started the, the long line. Of, yeah, but started the long line of uh, like great spectacular failures of Mets trades. Anyway, anyway, Paul Simon really quickly. So Paul Simon was here last night as part of his farewell homeward bound tour. Um, and, Bobby, I mean, listen, I've been to better concerts in my life. I mean, the dude is 76. Um, but he's got this 15-piece band, you know, the, the 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 variety of musical styles from, like, the early sort of... Yeah, did he did he kind of survey his whole landscape? The whole, the whole of, right? Any, anything, that, what stood out? Like, what, what really brought the house down? Um, what's brought... So, um, the, the way that, just the way the concert unfolded, right? Boy in the Bubble... Um, right, the first song off of Graceland. Um, by the time they got to it, that was just like everybody was ready for like dancing and having fun with that. Um, 
You know, there were like four encores. The last encore was him by himself on an acoustic guitar. Oh, um, what did he play? And he played Homeward Bound. Of course. Um, and I'm trying to remember, what was, he played one more song. Um, a song I didn't know as well, but it was, yeah. it was really like... Oh, that's cool. Did, cool. did he do any like old Simon Garfunkel classics? A couple. So there was um, America, uh, uh-huh. Homeward Bound, obviously. Yeah, uh, Boxer? They, they did the Boxer. Um, you know, he's, I mean, he's 76. Yeah. And, and it's pretty impressive to be 76 and yeah. still entertaining 15,000 people for a couple hours. You know what? That could be our aspiration for the podcast. We'll be 76. Uh, <laughs> hey, I'll hit it a little be, sooner than say, you. You're going to be 76 before I am. <laughs> You'll get there first. And uh, maybe we'll be up to 15,000 listeners by then. Um, well, you know, you know what's going to happen? You know what? If, if we're doing that, I hereby promise I, I will bring the guitar in and I will play you the boxer. You know what we are going to be up to pretty soon? 100. Um, but also two Vladic children. That is possibly going to disrupt our schedule, yeah, listeners. So, so, so our, our recording schedule may may soon be slightly disrupted by the arrival of Baby Girl Vladic number two. So when this happens, we will deal with it. Just whatever we'll makes sense. We may take some time off, or we or we'll may do like an old like, hey, let's talk about World War Two. Ex- why don't we drag some of this equipment uh, to, the to your house but to the hospital? Say- <laughs> we'll do a, we'll do a live with show. Yes, um, but this is actually this is a good chance to, to ask our listeners. So so we've been th- we've been thinking for a while that we would try to have a couple of episodes every now and then that were less reactive to current events, but are more sort of deep dives. Yeah, that was actually the interest. original concept, indeed. Um, so hey, if you're still listening, and I realize we're an hour and fifteen minutes in, so there may not be many of you, and you have things you'd like to know more about, like famous cases or doctrines or or developments in American national security law, you know, drop us a line. We'd love to hear about it. Um, and in the interim, I'm going to be on Baby Watch. <laughs> Can I throw out something really funny? Oh, yes. Um, so I was just glancing down while you were saying that at uh, Twitter, and I saw Dan Epps if, about 15 minutes ago put up a pretty funny uh, tweet, t- and it says, the perils of using public domain theme music for At First Mondays. Um, this is a you know a really great fellow yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah. We love what Dan and company do. Dan and, and Dan Epps, Ian Samuel, and, and uh, periodic co-host Leo Littman. That's right. So we love you guys. And apparently, your theme music, according to what some uh, someone emailed Dan, it says they wrote. In case you weren't already aware, your introductory music was previously used in the 2010 Czech pornographic film. <laughs> Let me repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, the Czech t- pornographic film? The 2010 Czech pornographic film Bear Ravers, and then a link can be found. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Steve, I hope that our public domain uh no you know we pay for our, yeah, it we pay for it our our so so our music is not in the public domain no that's right place. but uh but i suppose it's possible it's been using some czech uh czech or slovakian uh pornographic film let's hope not <laughs> so I, I have so many questions about that uh, like uh, how'd you know how'd you know, <laughs> how'd you know? <laughs> how many what is the venn diagram oh of God. people who listen to first mondays and watch czech awesome. pornography on that note pardon me <laughs> Pardon me. All right. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, I guess next time you're li- watching some Czech pornography, tell your friends, listen to our episode. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Stay safe out there. Adios. <laughs>